Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Oikai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And as always, any questions uh, that you may have, any comments, concerns, uh, things that may be going on that you want to talk through, please uh, do not hesitate to come and find me or any one of the other elders after service is over. Sunday mornings are a great time to do just that. And so if there's anything on your mind, please speak to one of us and don't feel like you have to hold it in. Now, this time I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 18 and verse 28 as we continue our study through Luke. Luke chapter 18, verses 28 through 34 is our passage this morning. And that passage can be found on page 878 if you are using a church Bible, uh, page 878. Luke chapter 18 and verse 28. Before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you for this time of worship, and as we come before your word, we ask that you would uh, clear all kinds of distractions and that you would please speak to us in a way that only you can, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would give to each of us hearts to understand the wonderful truth contained within it, that you'd give us eyes to behold the glory of Jesus Christ so much so that it really transforms us from the inside out. Would you show us, God, just how much it is that you love us? Uh, that nothing else would really matter quite as much. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus has been most recently speaking about the kingdom of God and, and in a way that perhaps uh, no one would have ever predicted. At the beginning of chapter 18, Jesus uses a powerless widow as a positive example in the kingdom. I mean, this is someone no one wants to be in the first century. Over in a widow, pick one. And Jesus is saying, be like this persistent widow. Right after that, Jesus gives a parable where a scoundrel of a tax collector, he goes home justified instead of the religiously elite Pharisee. The worst of the worst is somehow declared righteous, and the best of the best is not because one knows he is a sinner in need of mercy, and the other one thinks too highly of himself. Right after that, the disciples are trying to keep the little kids away from Jesus, for so low on the totem pole are these dependent infants that the 12 actually try to create distance between them and him. He's got more important things on his plate. <clears throat> and Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Which means if we aren't more like these little infants, we actually don't get the kingdom at all. And then the kicker is a rich young ruler from our passage last Sunday. I mean, if anyone has anything to offer to Jesus, anyone with the sky-high potential, it is this young man right here. We need more disciples like this one, Jesus. Already a ruler at such a young age, moral ever since he had been a child, spiritual in that he is seeking life eternal, and perceptive in that he sees in Jesus something so many people in his position are refusing to see, that he really is the one who can answer the question of my heart's longing. He's the only one who can help me with what I lack and point me to everything that I've been searching for. And Jesus tells him, give away your wealth. Let it all go and come and follow me. And this young man with everything to offer, so accomplished already, he can't do it. 
He won't let go of an idol within his heart, like a raccoon whose hand is in a trap, grasping at what is shiny. He can't be set free unless he does release that grip, but he won't because that idolatry has a grip on him more than he has on it. And the disciples, who through all of chapter 18 up to this point, are taking all of this in with their eyes and their ears. I mean, widow, tax collector, infants, get it? And this young, successful, religious, capable person walks away from Jesus saddened. If there's any a time to feel insecure about your own perception of the kingdom of God and who it is it actually belongs to, the disciples are feeling it in this very moment. And in our passage now, we look at their response to it all, this kind of questioning, confusion. And then we look at Jesus' response to them, this, this comforting assurance and what it is that he ultimately points them to. And we see at the end of the passage uh, his ever-enduring love for them, even when they're so slow at grasping what he has made explicit. And so the disciples' insecurity and Jesus' reassurance, what Jesus ultimately points them to, and his enduring love for them. We look first in verse 28 at their insecurity and Jesus' reassurance. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Uh, the disciples, again, I think they're insecure here, a little uneasy in all that's going on. They're watching a young man choose wealth over Jesus and walk away from Jesus. And Jesus is lamenting out loud how difficult it is for those with it to enter the kingdom. And the disciples are likely thinking, well, what about us then? What does all of this mean for us? They're looking for some assurance. Well, we gave it all up. So what do we get out of it? And really the question at its root is, is being a disciple and is being a follower of Jesus uh, all that worth it? If the cost can sometimes be that astronomically high, is it really worth it to follow him? And that insecurity is not limited to just these 12 people who have left their homes and careers to follow Jesus. They can't figure out the kingdom at all. But sometimes it is that we can feel the same exact way. Because loyalty to Jesus does mean leaving other things behind. Saying yes to Jesus necessarily involves saying no to this and to that. And sometimes it can be in our lower points and in our weaker moments. That when we do witness, people walk away from the faith and they seem to be thriving. Sad as it may be, they appear to be enjoying everything that the world has to offer and maybe not so with those who do not walk away. It can sometimes feel like we are getting the short end of the stick. It can often appear that the Christian life is only cost, cost, cost without any actualized gain in the now. And we may ask Jesus, even without even saying it, but merely just by feeling it, well, what about us? We've turned away from a lot to follow you. Where does that leave us? Now, the Christian life is costly, no doubt. Jesus says as much back in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We are to lose our lives, deny ourselves, take up a cross to follow Jesus. The Christian life is filled with cost, no doubt. And we should not be surprised when we feel the weight of that. In some of his more famous discipleship material, Luke 6.20, Jesus says there, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. There are going to be those moments where we lose financially, where we are more hungry than we would have been and shed more tears and experience more social exclusion and shame when we hold fast to Jesus more than we hold fast to anything else. He's been very upfront and explicit about the cost of discipleship. And for the most part, the blessings of Christianity seem to be primarily in the future. You shall be satisfied. You shall laugh. Your reward is great in heaven. We aren't there yet but we will be, it all sounds primarily in the future, which it is to a great degree. But the disciples, what Jesus with the disciples in front of him here, who are trying to figure out what in the world is going on, he doesn't just say, well, suck it up then, because it will be worth it in the end. And way, way, way into the future, take your licks now, and when all is said and done, it'll be fine, and you'll be glad you did it. That's not how Jesus reassures his disciples here. He says instead, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. The emphasis, well, in the future, the age to come eternal life is in view. The emphasis here is on the current benefits in relation to the current cost of Christianity. Many times more in this time. You get the benefits right now, and the benefits are multiple times the cost. When the disciples are tempted to think that they're the ones making the sacrifices for Jesus, Jesus is telling them that the actual return on those sacrifices and the return on these costs is manifold. Now, we can point to some of the current returns that Christians enjoy in spite of the sacrifices being made. I know there are some of you here whose family lives, whether with siblings or whether it's with unbelieving uh, parents, whether your friends you used to be so close with, uh, even potentially your own spouse, that, that Jesus Christ has literally changed everything about those relationships. And in many cases, those very relationships are much less enjoyable and sometimes even bitter and hard because you aren't who you used to be. And you know it, and they know it. And at the same time, it is the testimony of so many of you that the community you find within the church family is somehow greater than even your biological blood bonds. As you have new brothers and sisters and new spiritual parents and a, and a family that is so intimate that you feel you have already been given many more times in this life. I, I know that's the testimony of some of you here. I know there are others who, because of Jesus, have made certain financial decisions you wouldn't have ordinarily had to make. And yet you feel richer than ever that God has still provided for you anyway. There are testimonies about the job that you have and the house that you live in shouldn't have actually been yours. And yet provision and this crazy timing is undeniably providential. And while I think that Jesus is highlighting these kinds of blessings being manifold now, I don't think that these kinds of things are the gist of what he's saying, the main gist. I think there's something more here. These things, yes, but Christianity is ultimately Jesus himself, that he alone is worth any sacrifice currently to know and to have the Savior and not just his gifts. He is the reward worth multiple times any sacrifice. And we're going to come back to this in a little bit to explain that point in the next chunk of verses. But here, what Jesus is doing is he's looking at his followers who are contemplating, is this all worth it? 
and having that, but what about me moment, and he's assuring them that following me is worth it, and many times more so. And then it is that Jesus points them to what is ultimate. He points them to his own sacrifice, his own cost, his own suffering. Jesus points his people, insecure as we may be sometimes, he points them again to the gospel. Look with me in verse 31. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus here is pointing his people to what is ultimate. He points them to the weight of his own loving sacrifice for us to reassure us whatever phase of life we're currently in to convince us of his heart for us because we often do need that assurance that Jesus actually does love us. And I think it's that current enjoyment of that love which is the manifold times the suffering we endure on his behalf. How do we know that Jesus loves us? By how he suffers for us. If we can begin to measure his suffering that's when you have a better idea of the magnitude of his love. And I think there are two arguments within this prophecy of his own suffering that amplify our understanding of it and therefore of his love. The first is this, the length of the anticipation of that suffering. And the second is the explicit details known prior to it. The length of the anticipation and the explicit details known prior to it. First, the length of the anticipation of it. There is pain in the anticipation of pain. There is a suffering prior to the suffering, and therein we see love. You know, we signed up our youngest uh, to play I-9 soccer, and it was a disaster. We found some uh, cleats at Ross, a kid-sized ball. We ordered some pink shin guards on Amazon. We practiced a little bit on the grass to prepare for the season. And Piper, she's amped to play until we actually get to the field and we see all the people there. And she just decides to cry the entire time. She refuses to kick the ball. She won't run. She won't do any drill at all. We were uh, that family. And that's week one. We, we made it to week two, I think. Week two. And then her season was over. She hates soccer uh, that much. But this is how much it terrified her. She would wake up in the morning every day. And the first question as she opened her eyes is, do we have soccer today? And she had this look of terror in her eyes. Miss Gabby, her preschool teacher at church, she ran up to Piper with joy and kindness. She's smiling, saying, I'm going to come and watch you play soccer, Piper. And immediately, Piper starts tearing up, <laughs> starts swelling up in her eyes. She's not even playing in that. She doesn't play soccer. It's just the idea of it that is painful in and of itself. The anticipation of pain is pain. Now, I don't mean to lessen the gravity of this text at all by comparing somehow little kid's soccer to the suffering of the Messiah. There is no comparison but often we need something a little bit more at our level to understand what is way beyond our level. We each and we all know how much we can carry something with us and have it destroy us even prior to it even happening. When Jesus says, see, we're going to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He's showing to us, of course, the truthfulness of the Word of God in every detail that the prophecy within it is entirely accurate. But Jesus is also showing to us how long it is that he's been carrying this cross even before that cross would ever carry him. If there's pain in the anticipation of pain, 
Jesus has been feeling it for quite some time. For it is before the world had even ever been created that the cross was already upon Jesus' back as he feels the weight of it. 1 Peter 1.20, Peter says, We aren't bought with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Do you see that? Before the world had ever came into being, Jesus was already anticipating this cross. Revelations 13.8 speaks about the prior knowledge of everyone saved before the foundation of the world. Everyone in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. What does that mean? It means prior to let there be light. Jesus has already been carrying this cross. It means that the Son of God, seeing sinless Adam and sinless Eve, sin for the very first time and witnessing humanity, Turn away from Yahweh in the perfect garden. That cross is already on his back and in his mind as it comes one step closer to him. And throughout the Bible, Cain and Abel, the flood, uh, the perfect King David, who ain't all that perfect. Each narrative, another step closer to it. There is this suffering that is indicative of Jesus' foresight. And so much of this agony of the cross was really in the anticipation of the cross of which Jesus carried with him from all of eternity past. And it is here in these moments with his disciples that he spells it out for them exactly what is going to happen. Now, is Jesus waking up every morning asking the question, is it today with terror in his eyes? No, and that's the craziest thing about this. He's not asking that. It is painful, no doubt, but this is where we begin to understand this connection between his sufferings and his love for us. We read back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. There is this utter determination and resolve to suffer on our behalf, brothers and sisters. He's marching to that cross. He wants the cross. What does Hebrews 12, 2 tell us? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. I mean, he desires with all of his might to give his life as a ransom for the many. Jesus wants to bear our transgressions in his own body upon the tree, even with the pain of it all. And then we begin to understand the reality of how long Jesus has carried this with him. And then we begin to understand that suffering, the sheer amount of it, And then when we see his determination anyway is where we begin to scratch the surface of how much it is that Jesus loves his people. And so that's argument one. The length of the anticipation of the suffering shows us the pain in the anticipation of the pain and helps us to understand how much it is he loves us by how much he suffers in this perfect foresight. Argument two, the the explicit details known prior to it. They amplify our understanding of what it is that Jesus is actually experiencing And thus amplifies our understanding of his love. Jesus says, For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. You know, it's not that Jesus just knows that death is coming. He knows every explicit detail of that death and every detail surrounding that death from who is going to make the call, so to speak, where he gets transferred over to, and all the different ways he's going to experience that mockery and suffering. Let me read to you a a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. It says, I gave my back to those who strike 
and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. I mean, that's written like 700-ish years before Jesus is even born in a manger. And here he is, both eyes wide open to the exact, specific, minute details of all that is going to occur. Jesus does not have the luxury of ignorance here. He knows every single specific. And sometimes we become numb to all the details because we've become so familiar with Jesus' sufferings. I, I just saw a couple of teenagers on uh, Luna Lila Home Road after an electric bike crash. One of them had blood coming out of his scalp and the other gashes on his knee and, and, and elbow. And, and it's that darker blood, you know, when the wounds are really deep. And merely just by looking at it, I, I got the chills a little bit. I felt queasy because it's new. It, it, it's live. It's in my face. I'm looking at a very fresh wound. And sometimes we can be numb to the details surrounding Jesus' sufferings because we don't really see it. And also because we've heard about them so much, but, but we should think. I mean, Jesus is going to be mocked, and he knows it. People kill themselves when they're mocked too much online. Literally, people will be making fun of him as his body is paraded naked and then hung up on a cross of shame. And they're going to be those who blindfold them. And then after they blindfold him, they're going to start punching him so that he doesn't know where the hits are coming from. And they're going to taunt him saying, prophesy, Jesus, who hit you? I mean, isn't that crazy? Mocking Jesus to prophesy the very incarnate word of God. And then he's going to be flogged. And that means a whip with pieces of bone and metal ingrained into the ends of it are going to sink and, and embed themselves into the skin of his back. And when lifted up again for the next strike, they're going to rip the skin up with it, leaving his flesh exposed. So much so, whereby the end of the flogging, the bones of the back of his ribs will be made visible through the, through the canyons of flesh missing from the rear. Some people died merely from flogging. And then after that, there's a Roman crucifixion. And I don't want to bring up all these details as to misplace the emphasis solely upon the gory nature of it. But maybe we actually should uh, contemplate these gory details a little bit more than we do from time to time. Crucifixion is the worst kind of death the first century had to offer. And it was done publicly uh, to act as a deterrent for future crime. The, the nature of it was designed so that when people would witness it, when they would see it, they would think in their minds, I never, ever want to be like that person hanging right there and dying slowly over a period of days. The, the crucified ones had to push up on their nail-pierced feet every time they wanted to take a breath because they were so stretched out. And they rubbed their bare backs, in Jesus' case, raw and open back, up and down this rough wood just to take every single breath. And the onlookers would say, what do they do to deserve that? I'll never do whatever they did if that is the end of it. I mean, seriously, we can spend hours upon hours on the specifics of each phrase within these verses. And every single detail, brothers and sisters, even down to the spit in his face, Jesus knows it all. And yet we find here that he speaks so matter-of-factly. And with such few words, he doesn't dramatize it like I'm dramatizing it right now. Listen to Charles Simeon. The particular sufferings here specified are the most terrible to flesh and blood. Yet behold, he speaks of them with as much composure as if they were light and insignificant. But in regarding them with such indifference, he showed them how undaunted was his fortitude, how ardent his zeal, how unquenchable his love. 
And here's the intimate tie of understanding his sufferings to understanding his love for us. When we see that anticipation of pain being pain, and the amount of details known prior to the events themselves, and still yet he has this undaunted fortitude, this sheer determination. I mean, listen to all of Jesus' verbs here. Will be accomplished, will be delivered, will be mocked, will kill him. It's not a matter of if for him, as if he's still trying to make up his mind to see, is this gospel really worth it? No, in his mind, it's undeniably going to happen, for this is as much my Father's will as it is mine. And this is my people. This is my church. This is my bride. And she is definitely worth it all. I mean, do we understand how unquenchable Jesus' love for us truly is? That with the alternatives before him, either I bear their sins on my body or I leave them to perish under the wrath of God I will give myself up, and I know every single detail. And I've been carrying this cross from eternity past. I will give myself up for them whom I love with all of my heart. This is the argument behind Romans 5. For a while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person. One would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, you hear that love? We didn't earn a thing. The love is all one directional from him to us, and therefore we never have to feel insecure about it, for it never rested upon any of us at all in the first place. We, we look at how he suffers, and then we understand how he loves. And this is what is ultimate. And yet it is in the very same breath that Jesus also sees the resurrection as well. He must rise. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Jesus must rise. And he did and is ever alive again. And he will return for his people very soon. That as death did not hold him, death will not hold us. Jesus is pointing his followers to what is ultimate, which is his love shown in his suffering and in his death and in his resurrection. And this understanding of love can be experienced by us now and not reserved for some future time only, but it is a love that we experience in the now that is worth multiple times any kind of sacrifice we make because his sacrifice really swallows it all up. The Christian life is not only cost, 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 with no returns in the now. We have Jesus now, and we experience his love now. Listen to J.C. Ryle. The meaning is that the believer shall find in Christ a full equivalent for anything that he is obliged to give up for Christ's sake. He shall find peace and hope and joy and comfort and rest in communion with the Father and the Son that his earthly losses shall be more than counterbalanced by his spiritual gains. In short, the Lord Jesus Christ shall be more to him than property or relatives or friends. And it is this kind of current enjoyment of this kind of love which is transformational. I mean, think about it. If we're convinced that he loves us, we don't have to go look for love in a, in a boyfriend or girlfriend. If we're convinced he loves us, the, the applause of the world means less and less to us. 
His opinion means more than everything. If we're convinced of his love for us, we feel more secure even if people mistreat us. If we're convinced of his love for us, we don't need this or that or that or this, and we're going to walk away from millions because that just doesn't tickle our fancy anymore like it used to. If we're convinced of his love for us, we can trust him even when our circumstances and situations scream at us not to trust him. If we're convinced of his love for us, we can. But if we're not convinced that he loves us, then we're going to start chasing and chasing. And we're going to come up all empty like the rich young ruler who chased and got everything and still cannot come to a place to believe that Jesus can somehow be more than everything I currently have. If we're not convinced, we're going to be more like the woman at the well in John 4 who's on her sixth dude after five husbands and the sixth guy is not even a husband because she's looking for love in all the wrong places. She's thirsty when Jesus is saying, I got water that if you drink, you're never going to thirst again. Jesus is offering her himself. Jesus' love is ultimate. And with the insecure disciples in front of him who need the assurance that they're making the right call, Jesus points them and he points us to the gospel of the suffering, the crucifixion, and resurrection of the Savior he points them to him. We continue in verse 34, and we see Jesus' enduring love in the face of slowness to understand and spiritual density. It says, but they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. You know, the disciples, they, they just don't get it yet. They're dense, and God hasn't revealed it to them all. And Jesus still loves them through their slowness. You know, it's not like Jesus is speaking in a parable or he's using all these metaphors and mystical figurative language here. He's very explicit. And it's not like this is even the first time that Jesus speaks of these things. Luke 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He said it once then explicitly. Luke 9.44, let these words sink into your ears. That's how he intros it. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But we're so slow sometimes, even when Jesus is so clear. And I'd imagine if you ask these disciples, how can Jesus show you his love most? What would be the most loving thing that Jesus could do for you today? I don't think they would say, die for me. They'd probably say something more like, prepare a throne for me so I can reign with them. I mean, that's what they were always fighting about. If he asked a rich young ruler, how can Jesus show you his love most? What would be the most loving thing that Jesus could do for you? I don't think he'd say, have him ask me to divest myself of an idol within my heart. He'd probably say something more like, can I have both, Jesus, in the same heart rather than just you if you love me? And there's always this density there. And we can often be the same way. Jesus, uh, I'll know that you love me if you give me this one thing. And a lot of times it's stuff that the rich young ruler already had, or it's, it's the stuff like we're looking for love in all the wrong places. And our eyes wander here and they wander there when Jesus is right in front of us, telling us like he did Thomas who doubted, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it on my side. You know, we're so dense to realize that the real and ultimate solution to all of our wants and needs is, Jesus, if you love me, give me you. 
Because when I have you, I have everything. And I can trust you in everything, even when I can't understand the why of it all. You know, trust and love are, are totally intertwined. If you know someone loves you, you can trust them. And you have joy in it. And then the desperate widow and the broken down tax collector and the dependent infant starts to make sense. To the one who doesn't believe, it all sounds so demeaning. But to the one who does believe, it all makes sense, doesn't it? You know, I want to encourage you as we close that Jesus' response to the disciples is still love here. They don't understand. He still tells them anyway. He knows they're not going to get it. He still tells them anyway. And what he doesn't do is get new disciples because these current ones don't work. Because these current ones talk about their own sacrifice they've had to make. And what they do for me and how they're so worried about the cost. And is this even all worth it, Jesus? No, he stays with them, doesn't he? He is as steady in his love as he has always been. And even with Jesus so close to Jerusalem, really isolated in understanding since they don't understand, he still loves us. And oftentimes, we don't know how much he loves us until later. I mean, can you imagine with these disciples when they, after the cross and the resurrection, can you imagine when they begin to reflect on moments like these? Did we really keep fighting about which one of us was going to be the greatest? And think, I didn't even know what he was telling me. And he still didn't quit on me. He still loved me to the end. He still loved me to give him himself. And, and I think it's going to be the same with us as we grow, that we look backwards and we're going to be amazed. Oh, my gosh, Jesus. Oh, how you loved us, even when we were like that. Would you please pray with me? Uh, Father, I, I pray, God, that you, uh, using your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would convince us, God, of just how wide and deep and thick your love is for us. Father, make Jesus beautiful in our eyes. Make him the water that we drink that, so we never thirst again. Make him the bread we eat so we never hunger again. And I pray that you would give us those blessings now as much as we can handle and make our eyes and our chins look upward to the future blessing which will be ultimate and is guaranteed to come. Would you please bless your church and convince us of how much you love us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.